My guest this week is the founder of the amazing Eden Project in Cornwall, which has been called the eighth wonder of the world, and I really believe it is. Uh, we met 30-odd years ago when he was my producer and we recorded some songs together. I'm very happy to call him a friend, and I'm so happy that he's going to talk to me now. It is Sir Tim Smith. Sir Tim Smith, hello. Well, this is, the, this is a, what a marvellous moment to address a dame, eh? How you doing? <laughs> oh, we're so posh, aren't we? <laughs> I, I know, I know. We, we've brushed up good. Um, we we didn't do too bad, did we? Well, you especially. You're a national treasure, lovely. Well, I don't know about that. Um, they don't know me that well. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, today, which is... May the, what date is it? May the 17th. It is. That we're recording this. I'm so thrilled that you agreed to do it today because it's a very auspicious day for you at the Eden Project, isn't it? It is. The the, the tea leaves are running well. It's our reopening day today. Wow. Um, uh, it was amazing. There were queues uh, to come in. Obviously, everybody's socially distanced, but and everything's done online, which is extraordinary. I mean, you can't just drop in. You have to... Um, pay online you've got to uh, be given a ticket slot a timed moment to come in and if you're not in there you lose out um interesting uh, the british do like to queue though it, they, yeah, they don't we're mind. very good at we're very good cures yeah they, they don't they don't mind um and uh, it's great so today i know that there's going to be 1870 people are already <laughs> booked in um and that may go up there are a few slots left later in the afternoon um, but luckily, the clouds broke. The sun burst um, precisely at nine o'clock. It felt biblical. Yeah, because it's actually I'm in West Sussex and it's pouring ah, with rain. Well, so well, someone's looking down on you, Tim. I know. I'm absolutely. Well, actually, looking at the screen, you're looking down on me. But you know, the <laughs> the, the uh, yeah. But but I think I think the great thing uh, about reopening has been the sense of unreality through us all being separated and uh, separated, isolated. I don't know what the right word is. Yeah. Um, and all my colleagues who've come in to work today, they've got this kind of bemused look of battery chickens that have just been let out of their cages. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like I used to know how to make a cappuccino, but uh, this machine now looks so strange um oh, but no. i bet they're so happy to be back oh yeah they are and, and the thing is we're a very close crew um and we've tried to do these zooms you know you, we, we all do them don't we we live mm -hmm. on zoom but doing all team zooms is a very um it's not only a weird sensation, but it really brings it home that when you are an, a group like we are, how much the place is important for people's futures because, of course, you're zooming into people's private houses. Mm -hmm. And that brings it really home, you know, that, that, that jobs, it's a livelihood for that person who lives in that house that you're visually mm -hmm. seeing in that Zoom, which is actually very humbling. And it, it consistently draws your attention back to, you know, wanting to make sure that you protect it, uh, protect the project as much as possible. So today's a day of great relief. And great celebration. I'm sure it'll be... Wonderful. Did you meet the first person going in? Were you there? Well, to be honest, um, I did not. I, I was standing next to them being interviewed. This is actually, the, the, the word surreal is usually wrongly used, but this was actually surreal. I was doing an interview with the uh, news guy from Channel 4 about what it was like to meet the first people coming in. And I felt like saying, I would be meeting the first people coming in if you weren't interviewing me because they're standing right next to me. But there was a, a very charming family that were the, the first people in and they were very excited. Oh, so yeah. it was, yeah, no, so, so were we because um, I think I told you in, in the lockdown, we had a, a terrible thing happen that um, it rained like bilio and, and the river that runs to the north of our pit started to rise and rise and rise and we thought well we, we obviously we noticed it we were aware of it but what we hadn't realized was that the river goes underground uh, for about 500 yards and it had collapsed inside so suddenly the water piled over the side of the pit and it took out a cliff face and took thousands of tons of rock 
down oh and we literally came within half an hour of utter disaster <gasps> i mean you're talking about millions of gallons of water first of all it filled up a mine deep underground that had been made in the georgian days i mean ancient mine that we hadn't uh what, been like aware. one of the old tin mines weren't yeah, they yeah. tin mines uh, yeah, or yeah, yeah yeah that's exactly it, well, it's either, it where we are it's either tin or copper okay, um, yeah. and you you very often actually find the two together um, uh, so how did you stop that happening? Now that is a really ace question. <laughs> we we actually haven't completely stopped it happening. Oh, we came, as I say, we came within a half hour of complete disaster, um, and through pulling strings all over the place. Because you mentioned all over Cornwall there were floods now, but our flood was a genuine flood caused by a disaster that so it wasn't going to go down. And we persuaded these guys who had these giant pumps to bring them over. And they got onto our site half an hour before we would have lost everything. Another half hour and the water would have... Well, you know where we sat and had a bite to eat? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, all that area would have gone underwater. Because we're 30 metres below the water table in the bottom of the pit. And the water was piling into a lake which is under the arena. And it had just got up to the wooden bit of the stage. And... A foot more and it would have just poured into the centre and wiped everything out. Even worse, it would have gone into our sewage supply and brought all the sewage with it. Oh, nice. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, we still have two very large pumps operating around the clock. But the good news is we've repaired the damage, we've moved several thousand tonnes of rock and seizing victory from the jaws of defeat... The huge damage that took away the road access to Eden, that's why we had to mend it, it was going to be rather terminal economically, um, is that mending it has enabled us to put in something that we wished we'd done 21 years ago, which is we want to have a waterfall, but one that we're in control of. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, yeah, next time you come and visit, there will be a thundering waterfall. Ooh, how exciting. I know. But that, I mean, I'm joke, joking aside, it must have been terrifying. Although, all, all, I can't imagine what you must have felt like. Did you panic or were you in good control? Um, <laughs> well, the thing is, having done quite a lot of stuff with big equipment, I'm, I'm uh, obviously it wasn't my background, as you know, but, but I've become quite trusting of people who wear yellow jackets and hard hats and know how to turn things and suck things and blow things up. So, um, yeah, I felt pretty good. The thing that was most frightening after we had the pumps working the thing that was most frightening was that deep underground where this mine was which was 30 meters below us but you know we couldn't get it there was now a lake that was up to 20 meters deep with millions of gallons of water because the river was just pouring into it and we were very very worried that the weight could actually create an explosive force behind the cliff face and then go bang luckily um, having given you the big build-up, we managed to get some <laughs> suction, some suction pods down there, and started to lower it. Um, but for a few days, we were extremely anxious—not as anxious as we could have been, because of course we were in lockdown, so the general public weren't in. I'd say uh, at least in, there in fact, weren't thousands of people there. No. Well, I think that needs a slug of tea. Are you drinking tea with me today? Uh, well, actually, I'm. I'm. I'm having some very fine coffee here brought, bought from costa rica Ooh, very from next to our project in costa rica so it's not just any old coffee oh what's your project in costa rica i don't know about that ah we have ten thousand acres there i uh, it is an astonishing project I get this i gave a speech in london about two years ago two and a half years ago and it was a speech on the first floor of a building and the only reason I was using a lift was I was carrying something quite heavy. So I went into the lift, and just as I was about to press ground floor, these fingers came through the front of the, the door, and they pulled the door open. And this guy said to me, I've got, I've got to make an elevator pitch to you. I've got to. I've been told I have to. And I said, well, it better be quick, because we're only on the first floor. <laughs> and so he, he gets in, and he said... A mate of mine has just inherited a rainforest in Costa Rica and he doesn't know what to do. Will you help? And I said, oh you've certainly goodness. got my attention. And the story is amazing. His dad, this guy, not the guy, who got, the friend, yeah. his dad 
was a very wealthy guy who'd made his money out of fire alarms and burglar alarms. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted to put something back. So he was in Costa Rica doing something. I don't can't remember the story there. But he came to the far Pacific coast of Costa Rica and he found this area, a huge area uh, of degraded farmland where nothing, absolutely nothing was growing. And for five months of the year, there was drought and there were murders over water and all the rest of it. And you know what he did? He bought all the 42 farms. He put a fence around the whole lot. And he said, I want no humans in here for 20 years. I'm going to let the birds crap it back to life. And today, today, it is the most beautiful rainforest. But the really moving thing, Twigs, is that I, I went over to see it. And we were invited to this town called Paquera, which has got about 8,000 souls. And we were invited because the brothers who'd inherited it were giving the water rights to the town because that's really valuable in Central America. Yeah, and there was going to be a feast and all that. And the mayor, the mayor got up and made this, I mean, it was a tearjerker of a speech. He said most people in their lives don't have a second chance. And we in this town have been given it by the generosity um, of, of this Danish guy who bought the land. And he said to wake up every morning and to see again the weather systems gather over the rainforest and to now have the rivers back 365 days a year and seeing our fields greening has taught us we must work with the grain of nature and not against it. So, so when, he, when he bought that land, there was no trees? Oh, nothing. Why? Because they've been cut down for cattle grazing and oh, things like I that. Oh, I see. So they've grown, the rainforest has come back in 20 years? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Well, we're now, th we're now 30 years in because he said no, no humans in for 20. Then uh, humans went in and he died, and that's when the brothers took over. And then um, there's a little research station in the middle of it. But the really exciting thing is watching nature healing itself. Literally every year, you see the species coming in. Last year, um, we, 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 one of the things we've invested in is we've put in um, uh, heat-seeking, uh, you know, uh, infrared photographic things, night traps, you know, to catch oh, yeah. things. And last year, we have got our first ocelots, you know, the, 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 the type came in, and puma. And this oh, year in March, it, we, uh, it was huge excitement. Uh, jaguar came through. Oh, and wow. and what's so lovely about this project is that the se the secret of most of this restoration thing is not to then have no humans because that creates problems. You got to actually work with what you've got, and we're very thrilled. We 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 bumped into a chap that you may well know, uh, Angus Thurlwell, who owns Hotel Chocolat. I don't know actually. I know of him obviously, but I don't know him. I do like my chocolate, but I don't know him. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Angus has said, I love your project. And so we're now going to grow wild uh, forest-grown uh, cocoa. Um, and a percentage of the, uh, uh, the, the profit that comes from that, uh, the chocolate that is made with that cocoa, will then go, uh, obviously, the people who are growing it, who will be from Pacara, will get paid as well. Uh, mm -hmm. But the profits will allow us to buy more degraded land to create a, a long corridor. Eventually, the, di the, the ideal would be to create a corridor, which is actually quite possible, that goes right from Panama all the way up Central America and into Belize. You know, I don't know whether you can mm. imagine that map. Yeah, I, I can in my, in my mind's eye. I didn't know this. Did you know? I mean, I only discovered this the other day, which if my life had depended on it, I would not have said this. But the northern end of the range of the Jaguar is Arizona. In America? No. I didn't know they had jaguars in America, in North America. Well, they have a tendency to shoot things that look good. Um, so, but I think, the, I think the thing is, <laughs> I just, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But, but, but I think <laughs> one of the things that's exciting is that if you can get a corridor that goes all through the Yucatan part of Mexico and then starts to curve up, I have a feeling that the Americans, who are actually a lot of conservation funding comes from America. Yeah, it's just that it there's does. this. It's just that there's this kind of contradiction with the right to kill things without, you know, any constraint. I've always found the art of shooting bald eagles from a helicopter really hard to oh, square with the conservation. You know, yeah. 
Um, but anyway. I think you're right. I think, you know, majority of Americans would agree with us, but then you have got the 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 rifle lot <laughs> to deal yeah. with. Yeah. It, it, the, right it, to be, the right to bear arms, honey. I know. It's, yeah. a, it, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because I, I think it's very easy, and obviously as an environmentalist, it, it's if that's how I was to describe myself, it is incredibly easy to be lazy and critical of a politics you don't like mm -hmm. uh, without being self-critical about what you might be doing wrong yourself. And I would say that about rifles and bearing arms and things, I've been reading a, a book recently someone recommended to me, which is Theodore Roosevelt's History of America. And of course you forget that America was built by sort of pioneers cutting their way through. Yeah, they were murdering a lot of Native Americans and all the rest of it. But their whole tradition was that they set up these townships and then states which were completely independent. They, they were mm -hmm. going on. It makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? Now there's no land for people to go and be pioneering in. What happens to all of those people that were, were pioneers with that mentality? I know. You think about but, you know, there are still quite wild areas in America... Yeah, no, no, you know, the, the, Carly, who, you know, my daughter Carly, who you know, she was a little girl when you met her, but her dad, my first husband, his family came from the Adirondacks. Oh, right. And apparently that's way up state New York, on, and it, I think it goes as far as the Canadian border. It's yeah, very, yeah. very beautiful. And it's, again, full of bears. And apparently it's they haven't even, you know, mapped it all because it's so huge. No, I think you're right. I think you're, I think you know, you're right. Because so, I mean, America's so... I mean, uh, uh, America is amazing because it's got so many diverse and different areas. You know, I, I found out once that kind of 80% of America's Americans don't have passports because I think they feel they've got everything there, which they have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've got no. the seaside and they've got the mountains and they've got the forests and they've got the deserts. I mean, it is the most extraordinary country. It is, and it, 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 when you work there, as, as, as you have, uh, it, you are quite shocked at the size of it. It's a bit like you can imagine it, and then you go there, and it's even bigger than you imagined it. You know, and they're like little, they're like different countries. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously, I I've spent the most time in New York, you know, doing stage things, or Los Angeles. And then you suddenly go down to Florida or the... I, years and years ago for American Vogue, we went down to Louisiana uh -huh. and to do a photo shoot. And it was like a different country. This is in probably 1969, 70. And, they, you know, they were real rednecks. And we were shooting at a place called Avery Island, which is where the McElhenney family live. Uh -huh. And they make the Tabasco sauce, which I'm sure you've had on lots of food. <laughs> well, it, that is such a funny thing. That's such a funny thing. Three, four years ago, we, we went to Washington to the Smithsonian for yeah. a reception for the 50th anniversary of the Botanic Gardens, the Tropical Botanic Gardens of America, which are actually the headquarters in Hawaii. And the man I was sitting next to as a trustee of that was a McElhenney. Oh, there you go. And, well, and I'm, I, I, it's probably the guy I met. This was probably his son or grandson because I'm talking about 1970 and this guy. He's probably I mean, dead he, now. Uh, pardon? He's probably dead now, that guy. Yeah, that guy, yeah, because yeah. he was in his – I was 19. He was probably in his 50s. And well. um, and they were – but that place was like Louisiana. I mean, I'd never – you know, I'm, I'm from Neasden, love. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> I've never been anywhere like Louisiana. And we did a shot of me in a kind of very pretty white kind of long dress. And we were on the edge of a kind of bayou, I suppose you call it, yeah. with water. And the photographer said, you know, just take your shoes off and just paddle on the edge. And then somebody came up and said, I wouldn't do that, honey. You're, you know, alligators. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen me move so far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's such but, a good story. That's so, so funny that you would... That's probably his son or his grandson. But yeah, he insisted on giving little pots of Tabasco yeah. um, to all of us. Well, they, the you know, they've, they've made... They're multi, multi, multi-millionaires. 
because yeah. Tabasco's been going. I mean, I love it, but um, extraordinary. I, I, extraordinary. I can only use it if I put it in a Bloody Mary. I find it any, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere else, and I, can't, I find it offensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's Actually, pretty good. You know, it's good with oysters if you eat ah, oysters. Ah. A little, a tiny little dash with some lemon juice. Mmm, yum, 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 yum. But listen, we should discuss where we first met because people are probably thinking, how did Twiggy and Tim, how do they link up? Because they're chatting away like old mates, which we are. We first, I was trying to work, what year was it? 1982? No, I think it was a bit later because I I was doing the Broadway show in 83. It was 85 because I came back. October, November 1984, and then I went and did a film, and then I came back to England. So it must have been the summer of 85. And you were a music writer, producer. Yeah. Songwriter, whatever. What was your title? Uh, I, I think it depended on who I was talking to. Uh, I was... I was um, I was kind of composer producer and occasionally roped into being in the band but that used to <laughs> that used to get make me just all twitchy because I didn't like being on stage you know it's, it's really weird I can get on the stage and talk to any amount of people as a an environmentalist and make a speech but musically gosh I I used to find that terrifying I've got this thing you know I don't know whether you have this but but you know when you do something repetitively, like play piano, and you, yeah. or you, your, piano, your fingers go, that thing where you hypnotise yourself and you suddenly you're thinking, oh, it's all going really, really well. And then you look at your fingers and you go, God, what are they doing? Ah! And you're out of control. <laughs> and then you start playing bum notes. So anyway, we met then in 85, isn't that? Yeah. That's, uh, that- and I can't, I think, I, I think my record company because i was i had a record deal there i think then yeah god it's so long ago i mean we're talking 36 years ago how can it be we look so young tim well you do (laughs) my face looks like a topographic map of mars but you know um um you know and look at kobe on the other thing he looks so young you know he he, is so young he's the the youth vote yeah he is he's he's very young and very lovely well not to make Uh, you blush i can tell you i can tell you about the first day of working with you oh no and i often tell people this um not just because we're mates but because it was an absolutely lovely thing you did you came to work at uh, the studio in Frensham, um, uh, Chestnuts, it was called, and and we were going to be working for I don't know we, I think we were booked in to actually work for a month on an album, and um, on the first night, the, after, late afternoon, we went for dinner at the local pub, and we were all a bit anxious because you were famous and we weren't, <laughs> um, and and anyway, you were putting us at our ease, and we we we'd ordered we'd ordered our our supper. And you sat down and you fixed me with this stare. And you said, Tim, you've got to be honest about this. And I thought, oh, my God, what's she going to ask? And she said, are you paying for this supper or is it the record company? And I was, I got really embarrassed and wanted to be manly and take them. But she said, come on, come on. And I said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're paying for this. And she said, in that case, we're all going Dutch. Which made me lo- made, not only did I think that was extremely nice of you, but it was incredibly astute of you to be sensitive enough to recognise that. And I've, also, I've often, when the subject of the past comes up, I often mention that as being a, a wonderful sign of somebody who's intuitively not actually lost their roots and actually is aware that everybody isn't as well off as everybody else and just wants to be part of a team and charlie and i hugely oh. appreciated that um and we had a lovely oh, time good. we had a lovely time we with you. are it's happy happy memory time for me working with you and and you just mentioned charlie who was charlie scarback who, who very sadly we lost a couple of months yeah. ago very very sadly but he and you made me so, so at ease and and you we got some great stuff actually I think oh. the songs were beautiful, and I play them occasionally. It's like, and it's just happy, happy memories. It no, was they, lovely. They, 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 they are actually really good. I, I played them, knowing that we were going to be talking to each other. You also, had, my memory of that session was also that there was a guy I knew who came to take some photographs of you, and he took some photographs that you thought were not of a standard that you thought right, and you really berated him. I mean, you had you left nothing back. No, no, it was funny enough. He was a guy called Herbie Knott, 
who I occasionally speak to every so often, and it transformed his career. Because after you lectured him about being unprofessional and not doing the right lighting and all the rest of it, he went out and he bought, he bought himself all the right rig. Um, and the, the thing that pleased him the most was that the following week, I told him that you did a shot with David Bailey, who you knew very well, but you berated him as well. So I said, you're not alone. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very fussy about my light. <laughs> well, you don't. You have no need to be. But after having had well, to, trust me, I do. That's what great, great photography is about. I think is the light. You've got to, you know, you've got to have an eye, obviously, yeah. and a composition. But light is everything. So how do you how do you feel looking back? I mean, on 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 your life from now, look, looking back, which has obviously been a fantastically rich life in terms of the variety of things you've done. Well, a bit like you. I mean, I, I didn't like. I didn't plan to do any of. <laughs> I didn't plan to model. You know, I was this funny little thing, skinny little thing. I was too short, too thin. I would never have been taken on by a model agency, but you know, somebody up there, you know, looked down and said, "This is this is what's going to happen." And um, so, I think the fact that I didn't plan it and didn't long for it, everything that unfolded was a a lovely surprise and 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 it was like a gift to me like I didn't plan to do a film and then I met Ken Russell and who cast me in The Boyfriend and although I was very nervous about doing it I thought this is such a gift to be given to work with these amazing people and the same when I went on to Broadway I mean that was you know you talk about not feeling comfortable playing live I was so frightened about stepping out on that Broadway stay. I mean, that's major. <laughs> did it? Did it get better each time? I mean, every day. Oh, yeah. Did it get easier? Yeah. 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 But also, and I think you'll understand this. If you're, if the person who asks you to do something like that, to do a film, to do a major musical on Broadway, if you think they are talented and you trust and respect them, it gives you the confidence. You think, well, if they think I can do it. Maybe I can, and they will look after me, which Ken Russell certainly did, and Tommy Tune certainly did, and Mike Nichols, who came in to co-direct the play. It, it does give you a huge confidence to go out there and and try. And also, I th you end up thinking, well, the worst they can do is give me a bad review. They're not going to kill me. Well, I hope not. But <laughs> yeah. so, at what point will you gracefully become? You know, like there's been a, a fantastic trend over the last. 10-15 years of more mature women getting really good film parts and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I'd love, I'd yeah. love that but you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got to be offered them. It's like everything in life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go ahead. But no, I, I just feel I've, but you know, also for me my personal life has been very important as well. My kids and my husband, my now grandkids, but um, so I think it's finding that balance. I, I you know and when the lockdown happened you know obviously everything stopped in our business completely you couldn't travel you couldn't well you couldn't do anything could you um mm. so and that's when this podcast um idea came through and it's actually been wonderful for me because I've caught up with people I love and my friends and some people I don't know but that I think are great and it's actually kept me sane and um and, I, I, you know, and it was a whole area I knew nothing about. It was Carly's original idea and say, oh, mum, you should do a podcast because she was at a lunch where I was nattering away to old friends. And she said, you know, it'd be brilliant, you know, you tell all your stories. And, and I didn't really know what a podcast was. I mean, you know, it wasn't in my kind of sight, really. It's an idiom that actually, I'm sure Kobe will agree, it's an idiom that was made for you. Now, now you know, as, as, you, as you chat, it's actually... Are you actually, trying to say I talk a lot? I, I didn't mean that. You talk so well. You talk so well. Oh, well, thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
It's funny enough. I mean, they, another thing I remember that we we did together, which was a bit odd, but also, and again, don't blush. Um, we did the we did the. Obviously, he sadly died very recently. The Des O'Connor show. Oh yeah, he was lovely. You you obviously got on very well with him. I loved him. Yeah. You know what I remember about that show was. You, you you did a really good performance and we then went out into this wider area. I think it was at Thames Telly or something, something like that. And, and you'd brought your mum with you. And you'd, <laughs> and you'd brought Carly with you. And you there was a, somebody who came up and addressed a sentence or a series of sentences to you as if everybody else in the room didn't matter. Do you know what I mean? They focused just oh, yeah, on yeah. you. And you were outraged that they should bother to talk to you in that particular manner and you cut them utterly dead and I love that I love that because your mum and your daughter were there and it was a family time and and then Des came in and you were all cuddly 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 oh he was such a sweet man he I was doing that show you know I talked about you to him last October at the 70th birthday of a friend of mine and he I didn't even know they knew each other but he was there with his wife and I, I was wondering what I'd say to him and then I suddenly thought about that event at Thames Telly uh-huh. and it was all kind of a bit lovely actually I, I felt a bit embarrassed I'd even started that conversation I'm not like that <laughs> I don't do that sort of conversation but um, isn't it funny how cycles cycles yeah, he was happen a, a sweet man talented man actually yeah. I mean he, he he had his TV show for years and years and years it was brilliant yeah, and and then he d- he did that thing on Morecambe and Wise, and they all always teased him, and that kind of gag went on for years, didn't it? <laughs> and he was so lovely about it. So you know, the other question—I'm sure I've asked you this before—and when we saw it, because we hadn't seen each other for years, and then we came down to the Eden Project. Like, no, two. It was it'd be two years this September, you know, that we were down there. God. We've got to come back because do you remember yeah. the day we came, it poured with rain? Yeah. And so we didn't see a lot of the outside because it was so wet. We went into the big, what are they called, the big domes? The, 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 tropical, the tropic biome, the rainforest biome. The biomes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We went in, there's a couple of them, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, there's the, Medi- the Mediterranean zones, yeah. That's right. But I hadn't seen you before that for, for years. We hadn't caught up. No, and, um, you know, the last, the, the last time... You spoke to me, right? No, sorry, this, I'm, I'm pulling your leg very slightly. Was um, you may have made the speech before it, but Michael Aspel rated it the most extraordinary "This Is Your Life" ever, and you did an interview for my "This Is Your Life," that's right, which was sh- which was actually recorded on 9/11, and <gasps> I. I am phobic of flying and had to get in a plane so every to go from Cornwall up to London and everybody around me who now knew what was happening in New York just kept me away from radios from everything oh else my I forgot, yeah it was an extraordinary thing um in so many oh, ways wow yeah I bet. And, and you didn't know about it until you no well, back the weirdest home. thing was I knew nothing we arrived in London there was a car there to meet me I couldn't work out why I was in the car on my own um, because suddenly my mates disappeared. I arrived at Thames and I was escorted by security and they made a terrible mistake. They took me into the green room forgetting there was a television in the green room and I was watching this television with no sound and um, it was the horrible sequence of the planes going into the Twin Towers. And when I first saw it, I just thought I was watching a Schwarzenegger a movie. movie or something. Yeah. And it was only when the ticker tape started going along the bottom describing what was going on that I thought, hang on, and then I turned it up. And something else yeah. happened, which was the other unique thing about that This Is Your Life, is that um, Michael came to see me and he said, are you happy to continue doing the show? And I said, yes, but on one condition. My son was supposed to have been in Boston on the day of 9-11, I had no idea where he was going. So I said, I need to know, is my son, have you brought him over for This Is Your Life? And apparently I'm the first person they've told in advance that there's someone in the audience. Because I said I wasn't going to go on unless I knew he was safe. 
Oh, you poor thing. How frightening. Well, I discovered pretty soon he was safe, which was a huge yeah. relief, um, uh, which sounds awfully awful, doesn't it, because of so many other people oh, having a horrid time. I know. It's unbelievable. A... My God, life is so weird. Yeah. So, as I said before, we hadn't actually seen each other until like two years ago. But um, I always want, and I said, I probably have asked you this, but so... You know, you were very ensconced in the music business, doing really well. You'd won, you'd you'd done platinum albums, gold albums, endless ones. What, did you just stop and think, I don't want to do this anymore? Or did something happen to lead you into this totally other life? Yeah, it rained. Of, of <laughs> no, this is, this is the truth. I decided at the age of 37 I was going to trust my instincts. I was going to change my life. And I came with my then-wife, Candy, to Cornwall uh, for the first time. And it, well, on holiday? On holiday. And it started yeah, to rain, and I was standing next to an estate agent, so I walked into the estate agents in order to shelter from the rain. Inside the estate agents, I saw a house for sale, and I just sort of looked at it, and I took the, the, the paper out of the slip, and the estate agent said, Sir won't like that. And I was really annoyed. I was really annoyed that he should presume to know what I would or wouldn't like, so I took it away. And nothing more would have happened of it, except that the following day, it also rained, and I said to my wife, I said, um, should we just go and see that house? It's, it's just it's a crazy thing. So we drove even further away. Bear in mind, I lived in Brixton, as you know, at that time. I, I, <laughs> and um, um, I drove up this lane up to this farmhouse and this tractor pulled across the road and it was pouring with rain. And this guy came down in a sou'wester and the water just pouring over his face. And I wound the window down and he said, um, ear old buck, what are you doing? And I said, um, this is really embarrassing. I came to take a sneak preview of the farm at the end of this lane and I hadn't made an appointment and I was just hoping to catch a, a glimpse from the side. He said, happens, it's my house. So I went and I had tea with him and his wife Absolutely. in the house and two hours later I bought the house. <gasps> and I sold our house in London um, 48 hours later and I then had to make a good reason for why I was coming to Cornwall. But the truth was... I never really fitted in the music industry, if I'm being ruthlessly honest. Well, you, I, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that because you, you were a, a lovely producer and writer and musician, so, but maybe you just felt within your soul that it wasn't for you. I felt as if I'd given as much to that, my, as my life to that. Uh, as I, I had other things I wanted to do and I had a very strong sense that there was something else I was meant to do. But I didn't know what it was. It was not like I... So it wasn't like you had an epiphany and thought, I want to do something about the environment. It wasn't no. that... Oh, gosh, it no. Was mo it was moving down to Cornwall. Well, no, I, so I moved, to, I moved to Cornwall and then it was one of those th things. I, th this is completely true. I spent all of my spare cash doing up this farmhouse that we bought, which was, to say it had seen better days is an understatement. In fact, it had a pond that abutted the wall of the living room on the outside, but it had actually permeated all the walls. So when we withdrew, when we pulled back the wallpaper in the living room, for example, we found there were fertilizer bags that had been nailed in there to stop the water coming in. And when we peeled oh that back, it, well, to be honest, it looked like something that Porton Down would have been interested in. So we spent all our money on, on, on that. And then there's this horrible, horrible moment. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I really didn't know. I, I, I had a sort of uh, basically amateur studio, so I thought, well, look, I can compose film music or something like that. Um, uh, and my, my bacon got completely saved by a joke record that I had made, whew, 1979, something like that, in the same studio we worked. Uh -huh. one, one day I came up with a joke record because I'd got wet in the river outside Chestnuts at the back. And I made a, I said, let's write a song called Go Fishing. And this record, it was full of puns. You know, I can't salmon up the energy to do this. This isn't the time of the place. You know, all that sort of <laughs> nonsense of wordplay. And it was a tune not unlike In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry. It had a banjo and a bit of guitar. Anyway, the chorus went, go fishing, go fishing, go fishing by your own. And you blah, 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 blah. 
I go to the dentist, right? I'm now potless. I'm really worried about losing everything. I go to the dentist in Tregony in Cornwall. Why would there be a copy of The Stage on the dentist waiting room? It was a bit old, but when I opened it, there was an extraordinary article about Jack Charlton, the football player, you know, the, the, the late uh -huh. Jack Charlton, um, was about to make a TV series called Go Fishing. And I came out the dentist, I went to find the cassette, I sent it to the company, they phoned me immediately, they said, my God, this is the theme tune for our things. And they said, have you got any other music? And I said, of course, I lied. And I ended up doing all the music for a six-part documentary on fishing, plus the theme tune, Brilliant. which bailed me out of bankruptcy, during which time... Um, a guy I'd got to know delivered. He said, you've got a garage which you're not using and it's open. He said, I know just the thing. And I thought no more of it. I said, fine. And he turned up with a, a, a trailer and on that trailer was a black pig. And the pig was, the pig was called Horace. And we put Horace <laughs> in the garage and built a little fence. Horace was very convivial. He didn't like being in the garage. So he, they got very strong noses, those pigs, you know. So he broke out and he broke down the front, well, it's actually the back door of the house that goes into the kitchen. And he decided he wanted to just come and stay in the kitchen and put his he ass. He wanted to be in with the family. Yeah. <laughs> so he came in, he put his ass up against the arger and he'd sit there and we'd talk. And, well, I talked, he listened, he was a good listener. And then after a while, I realized he was lonely and I really liked him. So I went and I bought Doris. So Doris came, at which point he decided he didn't want to be in the kitchen. He had better things to do in the garage. Now he had Doris. Oh. And I had this complete epiphany when at the end of that year um, in November, when you talk about this is an epiphany, it was two o'clock in the morning and I heard a sound and you've got to imagine the scene. There is horizontal snow. It's two in the morning horizontal snow and I go out to the garage in which I've re I put fresh hay throughout it and there's a heat lamp with a red glow just in case Doris gave birth and there was this squealing and snuffling and there were 11 baby black pigs this oh, big just snuffling around sweet. I tell you it was biblical absolutely biblical uh. and I decided that this was a sign ridiculous man that I am I thought that this was a sign that I was put on earth to start a rare breeds park for rare domestic animals so I went hunting for a place I could get some land to do this I found some land I went to see the guy that owned it he told me instantly that I couldn't have it but he just gave me a very hot cup of coffee. So I had to keep talking or else it would have just been rude. And he'd asked me what I did in my past. And I said, well, I studied archaeology. And he then uttered the immortal words that I'd never heard before or since. I have need of an archaeologist. I, no one has ever said that to me before. And I said, why is that? And he said, he said um, I've just inherited this estate, literally right next door to where we're sitting. And there's a garden that was once famous... Uh, but no one has been in there since the First World War because so many of the gardeners died that the that my, my great-great-grandfather just put a fence around the garden and went to live in Italy. He was so sad that all these people, oh, three-quarters of them died. And so the following day, I found myself cutting my way in with a machete. And that really was the moment that changed my life. I fell hopelessly in love with this garden, which would become known as the Lost Gardens of Heligan. And... It's the most romantic garden in the world. And I still, I always say my heart is there, my head is at Eden. Oh, that's interesting. So from Heligan, that led to... That led to Eden. I mean, because Eden... But, I mean, when I came there, I mean, you just, I couldn't get my head around how you put that together, how you rate... How did you... What did it cost? I mean, millions and millions and millions. How did you fundraise? And... Eden. Eden cost yeah. £144 million. <gasps> wow. Um, well, we raised the, 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 the funds in a, in a variety of ways. Half the money... Well, actually less than half the money, but nearly half the money, came from the National Lottery through what was called the Millennium... Uh, fund. They had 12 projects around the country that were going to be called landmark projects. We were one of those. We got a lot of money from Europe. We got some money from um, what was called the Regional Development Fund. And then um, we got, we borrowed 25 million 
um, from a bank because we were very confident that the public would come. Oh boy, did they come? They, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they certainly have. And 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 then what happened was the public came in such numbers that it really wasn't pleasant. Actually, it was, there were too many, so we used the surplus of that first year to then. Um, widen our paths, build more cafes, do all of this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And since then, we've had over a million visitors every year, which, bearing in mind that we're 280 miles from London, is pretty extraordinary. But it, but it has been called the eighth wonder of the world, hasn't it? It, it, it has, it has, and and it's 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 no well, you know. Or maybe you're the eighth wonder of the world. Kim. No, let's let's do, let's not go there. I mean, with a really exciting <laughs> cheeky, um, uh, cheeky. I, I I think actually one of the things that Eden is good for is Eden was built in a place in Mid Cornwall where the people who lived here believed that good luck did not inhabit the land. And you find in lots of, well, in lots of parts of Britain, you know, if you go to Morecambe, for example, or we've got another project in Derry, you find that the land feels as if it's haunted by its past and that mm. good things won't happen. And that's why it's really important to get people to say, no, it's not the land. We can actually lift people up and do amazing things. And it, there's a really weird electricity that comes by positivity. To really weird electricity. Absolutely. Uh, well, the last year or so, Cornwall has become the hottest place in Great Britain, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone it, wants to live in Cornwall. It, it has, we're going to have to move to Ireland now, aren't we? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is. It, it is nice. It, it, it is a great place to live, and it's taught me so much about people. Um, the fundraising bit was interesting because my partner Gay, who was the at that time, she was the finance director and then became the managing director. She said one of the great skills is to talk to people and always remember that their greatest internal fear would be to not be that man at Decca who turned down the Beatles. So, so talk to people, always use the word when, never use the word if. Oh. And then when you're talking about it, you just imply that you don't really want to be telling your grandchildren that you were one of the people who didn't back it. And yeah. so we found... Especially with the climate now and, you know, climate change and saving the planet, you were, you were really ahead of the game, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we're lucky. I, mean, I think one of the great... Well, more than luck, well, clever. Well, and and you, saw, you, you obviously felt it within your heart and soul. That's what I loved about being down there it, it, you could see i mean obviously a lot of money was spent to build it but that it was done through a lot of care and love as as well and uh, all the other things you're doing well i i don't know about you but i actually think we're living in genuinely very interesting times i mean genuinely and a lot of people say oh it's so interesting i think the pandemic has done a number of things the first is that it is done in eight months, would something that would probably have taken 30 years of an education system to teach people, which is that the world is interconnected. We are all mm -hmm. interconnected and that national boundaries, whether you're British or Indian or Chinese, are pointless in the face of nature. You know, what we do here will affect somewhere else and so on. And I think that's deeply ingrained. I think also people have had a lot of time to think about their dependence or their relationship with the natural world. And also, I've talked to a lot of CEOs at big companies over the last eight months. They have taken a bashing from their children. Being at home, having breakfast with your kids every day, saying, Daddy or Mummy, what are you doing? You know, what is the, your company doing? It's actually been the straw that has broken the camel's back of resistance to a lot in a lot of these people who now see that business has got to have a moral compass because to be honest i i, I always steer away from politics but i i think we've been through a period where politi politicians haven't been able to distinguish between being a citizen and being a consumer therefore they have always wanted to have to be liked and actually, most of us would like people who really have a view of leadership and a long-term view about where we need to go. And I think, I think the big debate for all of us is how do we stop these issues feeling as if they're political? 
How do we stop it being political? So actually, it should not be a left-wing or a right-wing thing to say, I want for my grandchildren and me that our rivers are clean, that our water is yes. clean, that the air is breathable and doesn't kill us and that the soil is fertile. But don't you think it's amazing? Because I can't remember myself as a child. When I see these kids on telly talking about, you know, what they want and, and people like Greta, the, the, the activist, I can't remember when I was... And I saw an eight-year-old talking about it on Country File a couple of weeks ago and he was so eloquent and so, you know, committed to what was happening in our world. I can't remember myself in, at that age either knowing about it or caring about it. You know, I grew up in the 1950s. We weren't kind of aware. It's amazing how the children are now aware and realise that they, they're they the ones who've got to actually step up, to, you know, to do something. I, th I think you're absolutely... Or make us do something. Well, th that's a very good point. Um I know from my youngest son, who's 25, and his contemporaries, they're pretty pissed off with our generation. They, they are, that we have allowed this kind of moral relativism to creep in. And actually, what we've been doing is discounting the future, isn't it? We've actually been saying, we'll have our cake right now, and you guys can just have stale bread, you know, in a blunt way. Well, I didn't even think that far. It was like, you know, I never even thought about the planet being in trouble and, you know, it wasn't until, you know, people like Atten David Attenborough and, and you know, that got into my kind of yeah. um, knowledge that there there is going to be a problem unless we do something about it. But I was much older then, whereas kids today, maybe because it's on television and maybe because... No, but there's something you're missing. You're judging yourself against your young self against younger people now. The truth is, the world's population has nearly doubled since you were that person. The disasters that's happening ecologically, it's not that you were blind to it, it just wasn't very public yet at that time. The rate of cutting down rainforest, of polluting our oceans, of uh, uh, ice dieback and so on, has actually exponentially grown over the last 50 years in a way that you're not to be blamed for what you didn't know in 1969. In fact, 1969 was probably the last time or the last year whether if we'd, if we'd known what was happening, that would have been a brilliant thing to join us all together in protest. But at that time, the only thing we had in, uh, was you know, sticking it to the man in general and protesting about Vietnam in another way. Yeah. Whereas if we'd known about the environment, that generation could and should have done something, but we didn't. And, and I think they probably would have done oh, yeah. because it was all about flower power and love and help, you know, being kind to one another. But the, the environment didn't really come into it, but no. then... No, it, it didn't, because but also, we also, also, really aware of it. You know, you know, our, our 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 sound editor today. You know, he's youth. You know, he's been brought up on social media at a degree of reaching people. Where my son did an experiment. Uh, I I said, how long would it take you to reach a hundred thousand people? How long do you reckon it took? Twelve minutes. Because if you understand exponentiality and you say to your friends, I would like you to tell two people each and you tell other people to do two people each you go say one two four eight sixteen thirty it's amazingly fast a, a good example is how long do you think if a dripping tap doubled in drip so it goes one and then there's two yeah. drips, right how long do you think if they were doing it every second it would take to fill wembley wembley stadium and go over the top i don't know 46 minutes no. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Most people Blimey. don't understand exponential growth. I mean, when, I, I, well, that, that, I, no, I don't. I, <laughs> no, uh, that's uh, it makes it makes your your head kind of go. Well, uh, how can that be? I know. I know. It's, uh, uh, I mean, you you see some astonishing things. I mean, uh, talking about good things. Uh, my partner Gay and I went to India to Chennai uh, last February oh, yeah. to. A company, uh, a, a company that is regarded by people that I respect as the best company and the best charity in the world, both a charity and a company. It's very commercial. It's called the Aravind Eye Hospital. 
and mm -hmm. inspired by a guy who got Parkinson's who went into a McDonald's he suddenly wondered if you could operate a hospital like a McDonald's and they are a hundred get this this is not just a, a hundred sounds suspicious doesn't it oh that's a bit round they are a hundred <laughs> times more efficient than the National Health Service and their surgeons their surgeons are rock stars two gurneys come in at once yeah um, there's a, a the, the, the nurse brings a kidney bowl with the operating things one two three bang two minutes 48 seconds he's taken uh, lenses out and put in new cataracts throws wow. the, throws the tools in a new kidney bowl washes hand turns round the the new gurney is right next to him here does it again and they do they do eight major operations every hour eight an hour every surgeon is doing oh they then do they do it for about 90 minutes then they go into a kind of green room they have a shower they have a cup of tea or something and then someone else does an hour and a half and then they go back in and mm. they have done 36 million cataract operations in the last 20 years and they're now up they've got up to five million a year in Tamil Nadu. that's unbelievable i'd never heard of this oh, place when you watch this they've trained women with no education beyond second grade to they've made a factory to create lenses which were costing $350 a lens they're now making them to the same standard at $10 a lens but mm. so I wasn't trying to excite you about that the really unbelievable thing is we met when we were there we met the guy who's the boss of Google Asia and oh, yeah. he came to talk to us about the excitement that he was feeling at having Google involved in supporting this hospital with Moorfields Hospital in London, the Eye Hospital in London, yeah? Mm -hmm. And the big data. He says, imagine you've got 36 million photographs of eyeballs and then you bring the medical records of those people who own those eyeballs and you link them up. He said, it reveals a world of knowledge which you can only dream of. So, for example, when you've got 36 million retinopathies, when you see the veins in the back of the eye, and you see that in that 36 million, one million people who have exactly the same vein structure get a coronary. Oh, wow. He said the revolution of big data is that when you put those things together and overlap them, you suddenly see something extraordinary, that an awful lot of things you thought were symptoms are actually causes and an awful lot of things that you thought were causes are symptoms. Are symptoms. But I, 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 it's, wow. it is such an exciting time to be alive. I mean, this stuff is just mind well, I, lo I love your optimism because I was going to ask you with everything you know about, you know, the planet and what's going on, are you optimistic or pessimistic? But you are optimistic. I've, I've stopped using the word optimistic. You know, oh, okay. No, no, the reason, sorry. Uh, <laughs> hopeful. I, that's exactly it. it. It's hopeful. I think optimistic implies a kind of frivolousness, whereas hopefulness is a muscular word if you use it in the right way. I think, I think we are living at a time that is more exciting than when humans came out of the trees and went onto the savannas. I think well, I, th I think we're about to start a period that a hundred years from now will be referred to as the dawning of the new green enlightenment. I really do. And do you think do you think that the, the, the COVID pandemic has had something to do with that to make people stop and think and rethink, reevaluate their values, their life? You know, I've spoken to so many people who said they felt they were on a treadmill and suddenly, because of what's happened, they want to live a different life. They want to be with their families more they want to be in the outs you know outside environment care about the planet and they hadn't even thought about it before does uh, does that make sense yeah i think i think that's absolutely true i think we've allowed ourselves crikey you've known this more than anybody one of the most poisonous things in our society is the newspapers who have a mantra which is if it bleeds it leads and actually, mm. we live in a world where most people are good, most people are kind, mm -hmm. and we should grab that optimism and hopefulness and realise that it might just be a moment of great history for our species. How wonderful. Listen, on that note, I'm going to wrap this up because that's an amazing thing to end on. And I've, I realise I've been chatting to you for 
over over an hour. <laughs> so we could have gone on for 10 hours. It was a great pleasure. It was a great pleasure. So I'm going to say bye. Bye. Well, that was amazing talking to Tim. We could have actually gone on talking for about five hours, but um, I think my producer would have um, keeled over. (laughs) But he's so interesting and he knows so much and it's quite an extraordinary life, isn't it? And he's so hopeful and optimistic. and, And if you haven't been to the Eden Project or the Lost Gardens of Heligan, do go. The Eden Project's incredible. And it's in Cornwall, which we all love. Anyway, take care and I'll see you soon. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.